And sisters, hear the good news. Sin is contagious and spreads throughout all the earth with the violence of death. It tears apart relationships, injures loved ones, speaks lies, and encourages the mob to violence. Sin brought Jesus to the hostile crowd, shouting and jeering for his death. Sin led men to deliver a guilty verdict to Jesus, though no sin was found in him. But through the obedience of Jesus, sin was dealt with, and Jesus conquered sin and death. Now Christ Jesus reigns instead of sin. And as part of the body of Christ, you have been justified and live a life where grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers, brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Hosea chapter 5, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. For the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know Yahweh. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek Yahweh, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at beth Aven. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know Yahweh. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth 
and the judgments on you are like that, are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. Let's now turn to the back of our bulletins and read together as a congregation Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it in labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let's bow in prayer. Now, Father, by your grace, we come before your throne. We draw near to hold fast the confession, which is our hope. We want to hold fast without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. So now we pray that you would speak to us, transform us, make us like Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And when, or while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threat, but kept 
entrusting himself, handing himself over to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we've been healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Well, I uh, engaged in marriage counseling in May. I wasn't getting it, I was giving it. In June, in July, in August, we'll be in September and October. Five people in that span related to this congregation will be married. I'm immersed in marriage stuff. And so I thought, you know, let's just take it easy and let's bring it to the congregation. No, the reason I asked the elders if we could uh, just do a bit on, I asked for child rearing, I secretly added to it a couple of lessons on marriage because the strength of the church resides in healthy families. And if you're like me, you could use a little readjustment from time to time. And so today we're going to talk a bit about covenant and we're going to relate that particularly to men. Next week, we will talk about men and women. And then after that, we will have a few lessons on child rearing. What we just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, and from 1 Peter chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, which is drawn from Isaiah chapter 53, is about headship. The language isn't used in these passages, but that's what it's about. It's about covenant headship. We, uh, through our tradition, have not been uh, keen to think covenantally through the Bible. But the Bible is fraught with covenant from Genesis 1 onwards, as we will see. And in fact, one could almost say, if not totally say, God only relates to man by covenant. Now, of course, we know about the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant and th those sorts of covenants. And we know that those covenants are made by God with his people but we don't tend to think very covenantally ourselves. And when it comes to the family, we are covenant families. Now, covenant, uh, as Hyde read for us out of Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant there they have dealt treacherously against me. So we're looking back to uh, Genesis 
and Adam violated the covenant. Who did he have a covenant with? Well, there, were, there was the covenant with God where he was entrusted what to do, and it had, as covenants had, curses and blessings. In the day you eat from it, you shall dying die. But in the early chapters of Genesis, also, there is a covenant that he has with his wife. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 17, Solomon is talking to his son, and he says in verse 16, to, to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Well, that's lines in parallel. So the companion of her youth and the covenant of her God is a marital covenant. Now, if you would, turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. In case you don't know that, that's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 has a statement about covenant, marital covenant in it. And Malachi chapter 3 verse 15 is notoriously difficult. Uh, the Hebrew text is, well, some people would say it's corrupt, which that's a possibility because texts do become corrupt. And textual critics try to figure out what the original text said. But Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, uh, Malachi 3 may not be corrupt, but it is uh, a little oblique. And so if you pick up different translations of the Bible, you will see strangely different translations. And yet, uh, for most, it all comes down to pretty much the same thing. The idea is the same. In this case, surprise, surprise, I will be reading from the NIV. And uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with, uh, with wailing and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive uh, with goodwill from receive it with goodwill from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, unfaithfully, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But, <clears throat> verse 15, but did he not make them one? In the Hebrew, this is just two words. Well, actually, one. It's just the word one. Having a remnant 
of the Spirit. The question is, should that be capital S or smaller s? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, or the word really is guard your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously, unfaithfully with the wife of his youth. For Yahweh God, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says Yahweh of hosts. Therefore, take heed, guard your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously, and we might add, with the wife of your youth. Now, in, in this, I read this because you see we are uh, married by covenant. And a covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered. Notice who the witness against them is. It is God. So when two people get married, we speak about taking vows in the presence of God and these witnesses. God is a witness of a marriage because God is the one who created marriage and it is a covenant marriage. Now, this language is uh, used uh, in a few places in the Old Testament. And this word in connection with uh, marriage is uh, not so used in the New Testament. Instead, you would find the word headship, which we'll look at in a minute. But I want, what I want you to notice is in this passage, and I don't know what translation you're using, but all of them uh, bring out this idea that God has made man and woman one with the remnant of the Spirit, which could mean he's put a portion of the Spirit into each couple, something like uh, when the Spirit went from Moses to the 70 elders. They each got a portion of the Spirit. It might mean that, or it might mean when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, Spirit, that he only gave a portion, a remnant. That is, he could have made more men right then or more women, but he didn't do that. He made them one with a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? Because God is seeking godly offspring. The word godly is just the word God. God is seeking God offspring. Now, of course, creatures are not God, but Adam is called the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God, of course, in a different way than Adam because he was eternally the Son of God, and then he was born as a human being. He is the Son of God. And the Bible speaks of sons of God. We are those who are of faith, sons of God, and what God is looking for is God offspring. And uh, we won't take the time this morning, but we will in a couple weeks. He is looking for this offspring to be from generation to generation to generation to generation. 
In other words, we tend to talk in Christian circles about our descendants being of faith, but then the next generation just kind of falls away. They have a term for it. I forget what it is. But that's not the Bible's picture. The Bible's picture, as we read in Psalm 102, is going to be generation, 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 generation. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and other locations, it's talking about 1,000 generations. Now, whether that's just hyperbole or literal, who's to tell? Whether it's hyperbole or literal, it means a whole lot of generations. Well, if you thought in terms of a thousand generations in biblical terminology, you would be thinking of 30 to 40,000 years. If a generation is 30 or 40 years. Well, even if you take 20 years, then you're talking about 20,000 years. And since Deuteronomy has been written, there's only been what? 3,000 years? which means, oh, we got 17,000 years to go. Now, whether that's the way to take it or not, you'll have to think about that. But the point is this. When God made man, as we've been stressing, he made man to be one, and he put them together by covenant. We're going to look at that in just a minute. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's the task of man. Now, that task has not been aborted. In fact, it's been recovered in Christ. Man fell into sin, and man became a mess, and God wiped the earth clean, flooded it all over, so it was just like before the first creation, and then he recreated a new people out of Noah and his descendants who came through the flood. And so we have a, a new earth, and then the same mandate exists. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The history of the Old Testament is a history of failure, as we've been noting in Chronicles. Instead of, instead of one king having a son and another son and another son, and they're all faithful to God, we, we don't see that. We see a king have a son. He might be faithful, but the next one is not. And so generation after generation does not yet come about in the Old Testament. But when you come down to Christ, then a, 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 a promise is fulfilled. And in Christ... In Christ, who bore our sins in his body on the tree. In Christ, who knew no sin, but became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, what is promised, what is supposed to be able to happen in our times, right now, right here and now, is, okay, I get married and I have, you know, one, two, or 12 kids. Nobody laughed. <laughs> and then my kids have kids. So right now, I have 19 living grandkids. And all of those kids are going to have kids, 
And if you push out and push out and push out, say 100 years, 200, how many do you think there will be? And the promise, the promise is generation after generation after generation after generation. Why is that not taking place? Well, some of us will throw out the idea of election. Well, I don't know if my offspring is elect. That's a true statement. You don't know. But the way the Bible is written, whether you know it or not, the way the Bible is written is you can train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's the picture. And uh, we're just now beginning a new burst in the idea of child-rearing. So what's happening in our country looks terrible, but it is what the church needed to wake up so that we say, oh, well, I better not send my kids off to those pagans to be taught. I better teach them myself. I better train my children. So we're going to be looking at this subject both maritally this week and next week, and then in terms of training children. But I have this question to ask you. When you look at the scriptures, after we come to our prayer time, we're going to be reading out of Mark, and Jesus says, have faith. Okay? Do we have faith? Or let me put it another way. When we read the scriptures... Do we really believe them? If it says something like, spare the rod and spoil a child, do we believe that? If it says, if you don't discipline your child, you hate him, you don't love him, do we believe that? Well, maybe we're on the verge of believing it. But the church in, across the evangelical church across America in, in, in the last decades has not believed it. So we've handed our children off and we're reaping the consequences of it. And so what I want, I'm sure which all of us want, is we want NBC to buckle down and have covenantal marriages like the Bible tells us, and have children growing up who are sinners. And we work with these sinners as parents, trusting what the Scriptures say, and out the other end, we're going to see our children grow up, marry Christians, have kids, train them well, grow up, Marry another Christian, have kids, train them well. Do you want that? I want that. That's what we need in this church, in the church, and in our country. Now, Malachi says, he made them one. Why did he make them one? Because he was seeking a God offspring. Well, of course, if you take the word God and you go all the way back where this is taken from in Genesis, what do you get? 
you get a picture of God making someone in his own image according to his likeness, male and female, to do what? To do what God does. Have relationship with one another and to rule the earth and subdue it. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter... See if I can find my Genesis. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Now, because of the shortness of the time, we will only be able to say just briefly certain things. And in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, is a second creation. The first creation is chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 3, and God's name that's used there is Elohim because he's creating everything, and Elohim is power, the powerful God. Then when you get to chapter 2, all of a sudden you see the term Lord God. Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh God. And Yahweh is God's covenant name. And when you come to covenant made in the book of Exodus, God relates to his people by his covenant name. Tell them my name is I am, Yahweh. So here in chapter 2, God shows himself as the covenant God and he creates this garden and he puts trees in it with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life and by the way all the trees including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for fruit and good to look at that's the way God made it and uh, he's got this garden and out of this garden flows four rivers and uh, because one river is coming down into it and it splits into four rivers when you come down to the end of the Bible you've got this city and at the top is the throne of God, and out of that throne flows one river that splits into 12 rivers and makes its way down to the 12 gates of pearl and flows out to the nations. So we move from garden to city, and all of you thought you're supposed to live in the country. <laughs> so God puts the man in the garden. Tells the man what to do in the garden, cultivate it and keep it. In other words, serve it and guard it. And he tells him what he can eat and what he can't eat. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then verses 19 and following, Adam names all the animals, the birds and the cattle and the beasts. And he looks, and among all of those, there's not a helper suitable for him. So God puts him to sleep in a very deep sleep and takes something out of his side, a rib, a piece of flesh. And then he takes what he's taken out of Adam. He takes Adam, and he makes a woman. And so the woman is brought to him in the first marriage ceremony. God walks her down the aisle right down to Adam. He says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Adam and Eve are the beginning. The rest of us, we're just part of the paradigm because Eve really was Adam, taken right out of his side. We come together in one flesh, and we're counted one flesh like Adam and Eve. And then comes the test in the garden, and Adam was told, guard it, guard it, guard it. 
And then comes this beautiful dinosaur. I can prove to you it was a dinosaur. And uh, the dinosaur talks to Eve, and she sees that the tree's good to look at. It's got good fruit, and it's able to make one wise like God. And so she eats, and Adam's standing back looking at her, and she hands it to him, and he eats, and then God comes, and he calls to Adam, who's afraid now. Why? Because he did what God said not to do. And they sewed their fig leaves and covered their loins, hid from each other, and they hid among the trees when they heard the sound of the Spirit walking in the garden. And God said, where are you? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, there's a whole lot to say there, and if you want some post-marriage counseling, I can give it to you. It takes about two weeks. But what's there is a covenant that Adam made, or God made with Adam, and a covenant that Adam had with his wife. And he is the head. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in verse 3 it says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Well, headship, we, we don't have time to develop all this, but headship is talking about covenantal headship. So God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in a triunity, in a covenant, an eternal covenant. And then... The Father sends the Son into the world, and the Son in one person has two natures, God and man. And so now the Son of God is a man, and God the Father is his head, headship. That's why Jesus says, hey, I do what I see my Father do, and I say what I hear my Father say. Christ is the head of every man. In this auditorium here, every man, Christ is your head, your covenantal head. Jesus says, hey, I do what my Father does, and I speak what my Father speaks. And every man should say, hey, I do what Christ does, and I speak what Christ speaks, right? And then of the woman, he says, and the singular man, a word for a male, is the head of a woman. So 
all women in this congregation are under headship, either their husband or their father. And since Christ is the head of your husband or your father, he's the head of you. But then when we morph down to the man, the man is the head of the woman. And so the way it should be is a woman would say, hey, I do what my husband does. And I speak what my husband speaks. Well, the only problem is, you know, men, well, what can you say? Verse 1 says of chapter 11, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now, Christ is Paul's head, and he imitates him. The man is a head of a woman, and what happens? I'll tell you what happens. She imitates him. Well, imitation is how you learn. And so God took Adam and Eve, and he divided Eve out of Adam first and then brought them back together. So here they are, one, one flesh, just like this. Or, as it says in Ephesians, your wife is your body, one flesh. Now, how many heads does this one flesh have? Well, it has two heads. But covenantally, it has one head. And so what this body does in arms and legs and mouths and ears and nose and all is under the responsibility of the covenant head. Okay, so what does our covenant head do for us in the person of Christ? Well, we read it. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed. Well, of course, the covenant head of any marriage cannot possibly do that. That is what Christ has done for the covenant marriage. But the covenant head can imitate Christ. And so Paul calls him to do that. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present her to himself. Present means to stand side by side to herself with all her glory, holy and blameless, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That is what a covenant head is called to. Now, just uh, notice, ch ch chapter 11, the first half of the chapter, is about headship, and it's particularly uh, having to deal with head coverings. That's not our issue this morning, head coverings. <coughs> We have been talking about that in the Tuesday night Bible study, but that's not our issue. But our issue is headship. And so we're going to read a couple more verses where he's talking about being covered or uncovered. Uh, I, I, I don't want you to get uh, bent out of shape about that part, but notice what it says in verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. What? Well, now, he goes on. For man does not originate from the woman. That's right, Adam was first, and the woman came out of his side, but the woman from the man. And indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, 
but the woman for the man's sake. That's right. It's not good for the man to be alone. Here, I'll make a helper suitable to him, and I'll bring them together, and they'll become one. So the man, we know from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him singular, male and female. He made them two. So woman's created in the image of God too. It's not like men are the image of God and women aren't. No. But fundamentally, the image of God is found in the twain. So when he says man's created in the image of God and he doesn't mention it with the woman, don't be offended. He's just assuming you'll carry that on. But what he does say of the man, the man is the glory of God. Now, this is a strange thing. Ephesians talks this way. I don't know if we'll get there this morning, but Ephesians talks this way. That is, it's a strange thing that this God who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, this God can be glorified by man. He's the glory of God. He's made in the image, and he's the glory of God. Well, how so? Well, I'll tell you how so. God creates this big garden, puts all these trees in it, and he says to the man, okay, here now, serve and guard. Well, the man failed. That didn't very much glorify God, did it? No, it uh, makes God look like he doesn't know what he's doing. But in the redemption of mankind and the gift of the Spirit, man is brought back, Hebrews chapter 2, and he's bringing many sons to glory. He doesn't mean to heaven there. No, if you look at the language, he means to rule the earth because he's quoting Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is about ruling the earth. He's bringing many sons of glory. So he redeems us in Christ and raises up men to do what? Serve the garden and guard it. Serve the church and guard it. Ah, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're going to do here at NBC, men. Amen? Okay, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now remember, up at the top of the chapter, Paul says, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, a head is supposed to be able to say, hey, wife, imitate me. How many of you guys are willing to say that? No, we're a little embarrassed about that, aren't we? Because we're not that good to imitate. But we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be. Hey, imitate me. Just as I imitate Christ. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. We don't have time to read it. But that's the point. So just as man follows Christ and does what Christ says, and that brings glory to Christ so we have wives and wives follow husbands and they become like their husbands 
and it glorifies the man in this sense. If you're a good man and you're following Christ and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as the head, then your wife follows you and people can watch. Wow, that woman follows and loves her husband. And that brings glory to the man. Now, just in case you think I'm nuts, look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 again and uh, look at verse 13. Now, he gives, he gives arguments that we've just seen and it has to do with headship and head coverings. We're not worried about the head coverings. Now, he's going to give argument from creation beginning in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray or prophesy uh, with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a shame to him? Whoa, whatever happened to that thinking? Well, you might say, well, I don't know how nature teaches that. Well, I'm not quite sure I know either, but Paul's inspired, and I know he knows. Good enough for me. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Well, so now what's long? Well, all I can tell you is mine's not. <laughs> And so, you know, there's some kind of evaluation, and partly it has to do with cultures, and cultures change. So, you know, a man, if he's got hair way down his back, something's up there, or as one writer says it, he wants to, you to look at it, he's just a homosexual. Well, he's right. You know, why? Because look at what it goes on to say. Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. This word covering means wraparound, but it doesn't matter for what we're doing. So just notice, nature's saying, okay, here's the man, his head's uncovered, he's got shorter hair, and he is the image and glory of God, and here's this woman over here who... Uh, came out of the side of Adam and all her daughters are like her and she's got this glorious hair and this guy over here says, hey, look at my wife. She's beautiful. Well, in the Bible, external beauty is used to teach us about internal beauty. And so this glory, her hair, is 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 typical of the fact that a woman glorifies a man. Now, we've said all of that. So here comes Christ, the head of the church, and this Christ has uh, never sinned. He's never spoken anything deceptive. When people hurl insults at him or are irritated with him 
He does not respond in kind. And when people cause him suffering, he doesn't threat, but he trusts God. And so for his wife, this covenantal head says, okay, give me your sin, I'll take it. Give me your insults, I'll take it. And he lays down his life for her. Okay, so every other covenantal head, a married fella, is called to be like Christ. Okay, so what happens? When a woman sins, yeah, she personally sinned. She needs to talk to the Lord about it. When a man sins, yeah, he personally sinned. He needs to talk to the Lord about it. But the covenantal head brings the two together and says, okay, God, this is my sin. This is our sin. Let me give an illustration. See if this will help. Way back, my goodness, just after we were married, we used to drive a... 1973 or 72 Fiat station wagon. A feeble Italian attempt at transportation. <laughs> and we went somewhere. We were in Portland, Oregon, and Grace backed up into a light pole. Busted out the tail light. What do you think I did? Oh, honey, that's okay. Don't worry. No. I got irritated, and I blamed her. Look, weren't you looking? From the blind guy. Weren't you looking? <laughs> but instead, the damage, the whole problem, well, it's one. It belongs to the covenantal head. He takes it on and says kindly no problem we'll take care of it and if it's sin she's committed it belongs to the covenant marriage and so the covenant head says okay let's come to understand this let's deal with it on the covenant head side when he sins, it's in the covenant marriage. What's he got to do? He's got to confess to God. I sinned, and look how it's affected the covenant marriage. Now, I don't know about you men, but I'm not very good at this. After 44 years, I'm still not very good at it. Why? I got a little root problem. I love myself too much just like some of you do. So, I've written down some implications about this, if I can find it here, that I want to share with you, and then we'll quit. So understand, a woman sins, she's responsible, she has to talk to God about that. A man sins, He's responsible. He has to talk to God about that. But when his wife sins, 
It's his responsibility as the covenant head, just like Christ went to the garden and then he said, if there's another way, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so he took on our sin, the perfect one, took on our sin that we might have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that when we stand side by side as the church with Christ on that day, we will be glorious, holy, and blameless. This is the call of covenant heads. Number one. You can no longer blame your wife. It's your problem. And probably in the long run, she's just been imitating you. Number two, headship is a given to you. You can't get out of it. Young men, if you don't want it, don't get married. Headship is what God has given you. So what do you do? Take responsibility. Christ-like sacrificial love is to be your model. Now, Christ wasn't on that cross dying for us, screaming and yelling at us, was he? No, in love, he took our sin upon him. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Husbands, dwell with your wives. Ah, the New American Standard says in an understanding way. I don't like the translation, and I'm not suggesting that men shouldn't understand their wives. Of course they should, but that's an impossibility in the end. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge means the knowledge of God. So what the Bible has to say, dwell with your wife with that kind of knowledge as with a weaker vessel because she's a woman. She's weaker, not because she's emotionally weaker. She's weaker, not because she's physically weaker. She's weaker because she has to submit to you. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge, as with a weaker vessel said she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir as the, of the grace of life, lest your prayers be hindered. Gents, your prayers are hindered because you do not honor your wife. Your glory is your wife. You shape her by how you live and act because she lives with you and can't help imitating you. So let me ask you this. Me, me too, ask me. Can you go home today after church, get home and say to your wife, imitate me. 
just like I imitate Christ. If you can't do that with honesty, then we still got some growing to do, don't we? Let's stand. Father, we thank you for our covenant head and how we've been made one with him. In some mysterious fashion, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we thank you that he loves us with an everlasting love and that he laid down his life for us and he has taken upon himself all of our sin all of our irritation, our slander, our wrath, our anger, our clamor, our maliciousness, our lies, our self-aggrandizement. He's taken it all. And he said to us, hey, wife, be free. Help we covenant heads of NBC to imitate Christ that our wives might imitate us. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.